Welcome to Contingency FM. So, uh, today, uh, should we just go around and see who's in the room? Hello, it's Matt. <laughs> hi, Matt. Hi, hi, Philip. You're a natural on. on Thank you. You know, it's a, a gift. And then on Matt's left, uh, Dr. White, it's uh, Matthew. Well, that's confusing. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say my name as your own. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's Dr. Matthew Nichols. And Jussie. And Jussie. Cool. Right. Uh, and so today we're actually going to have a bit more of a serious discussion uh, as a group um, around dealing with death and dying. Uh, we're going to chat a bit about uh, some of our first experiences uh, with this, um, uh, about uh, how to, what things make dealing with death and dying harder and um, what happens when you can't do anything about a situation and also about when sort of those lines between your personal and professional experience start to blur. Um, so we're not going to have as many jokes a day in this one, uh, although we have got a small treat at the end. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a musical uh, experience uh, that we have all enjoyed earlier today. Uh, but uh, as I say, we'll, we'll, we'll be a little bit more, um, a bit more serious today. So, um, I guess first question then is, um, what was the first time you experienced death and dying, um, Matt? Yeah, so for me, the first kind of patient who I had who died was actually my first kind of set of shifts. So I started on call for care of the elderly on nights. Um, and kind of on my first night, it was kind of like before I started, it was a shadowing kind of shift. And we went to see a patient who was very sick and they were septic. And we kind of did everything we're meant to do via the textbook, start for sepsis six and, you know, seemed fine. Then the next night I went back and the patient was more unwell. And again, did everything we could as we kind of should have done. And then the next night after that, I went back and they deteriorated quite dramatically. And there'd been kind of discussions during the day, DNAR had been put in place, but there wasn't really a clear escalation plan. There was still, let's just see how they are tomorrow kind of attitude. Um, but it became quite clear, maybe not to me first of all, I think it became clear to the nurse and staff first, because they're a lot more experienced in this kind of situation, that this patient was kind of definitely approaching the end of their life and they were kind of relatively imminently dying. Um, and I think that for me was quite a hard thing. Um, obviously we go into medical school and it's all about how we're going to save lives, make a difference and then for one of my first patients me to done everything as I should and actually to see that they, they weren't getting better and that what we'd done hadn't really made a difference and that they were going to die anyway. It was quite hard um, for me, I think. It was quite a shock in terms of obviously, I now know that kind of death and dying is a huge part of, and kind of palliation and when it's done right is a huge thing. It's a really important part of kind of a job of a junior doctor. But at the time, I, that wasn't really the perception I had. And I kind of probably viewed it more as a failure that we hadn't been able to save this patient's life. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. 
Do you feel like a failure in that? Yeah, I guess it's hard, yeah. Um, I think, not necessarily me personally, I think just the whole situation was, I felt like, you know, we'd done everything exactly as we should. We did the sepsis six, we kind of did all the right tests, we found out exactly what the cause was, we were treating it with the right antibiotics, we escalated the antibiotics when we got to the stage where it was clear the patient wasn't responding. But then the fact that that still didn't really make a difference because, and I think that's one thing to realize that we're not gonna be able to save every patient. Mm. So I think for me, that was quite a kind of a shock and I didn't really know what to do mm. at that point. So I escalated that up to, to one of my seniors who thankfully came along and they kind of agreed with the assessment. Mm. And they introduced me to things like the care of the dying document and kind of palliative medications and actually how we can, despite the fact that yes, this patient is a, kind of is approaching their end of life, we can give them dignity, we can let them pass peacefully and we can give the family the right kind of closure with that. And mm. even though I didn't really have a clue what I was doing that night, just by getting the right person in the right senior at the time, mm. It was able to that the family arrived and got to spend some time with the patient before they died. That the patient had the right medications that they were comfortable when they they passed. And I think even as uh, one on one of your first shifts, who may have no clue, we wouldn't expect you to. We wouldn't expect you to make a decision about whether to palliate a patient or anything like that. To know that actually your assessments are probably a good kind of a good kind of thought about that and actually you're in the position to be able to kind of get that patient the right care just by escalating upwards. Mm. I was going to say, who like made the decision that they were, that you were going to switch focus of treatment? Because certainly some of my first experiences was that I'd have a patient who was unwell and I didn't really know what else we could be doing for them and then it would, someone else with like an SHO or a ref would come along and go, yeah, I think they're dying and then they would make that decision and then progressively F1 and then into F2 we're kind of thinking a bit more comfortable making yeah. that decision myself so like was it the reds that came along or? Well actually in the very first instance it was probably one of the nurses mm. uh, it was a really experienced nurse on one of the wards and she turned to me and said this patient's dying mm. and actually that was kind of the moment that hit home for me mm. um, so I, I made the call to my SHO um, and my SHO came along and made that assessment and they were like yeah that's exactly is what is happening um, and I think you're absolutely right at that point in time I was no way near confident to be able to mm. make that decision because like I said we've been trained to just want to save lives but I think I look back at when I was an F2 and I was doing um, an on-call shift and actually I was getting those calls from the, the F1 and I was going and making that decision actually I think it's something that it comes with time but yeah you're definitely right it's, it's usually somebody more senior experienced who can make that call um, if you could sort of distill uh, one piece of advice to give based on uh, what would you do if you had to approach your, your first situation like that again, what would it be? I think it's to, to realise and accept that it doesn't matter necessarily what we do, the patients may still kind of deteriorate and may still die and to know that you're not alone in that. Mm. Um, we're not expecting you to manage that situation yeah. you're going to have a team around you who are a lot more experienced mm. with that and likewise you know my SHO was brilliant they were kind of said 
do you want me to come in and speak to the family and you can watch and observe that conversation so that yeah. you can kind of learn from that and use it as a learning experience mm. and just don't feel like the pressure's on you um, because yeah. it, it won't feel natural, it, it won't feel normal because you've not got that experience and mm. that's completely okay. Yeah, that's really good advice. Um, so on, on more of, maybe on maybe more of a personal note, um, what makes it harder to deal with your patients dying? I don't know if you want to answer this one. Yeah, so I find it a lot harder to deal with, kind of personally, when patients are younger when they're dying, um, compared to when they're older. Um, when older patients die, I think there's a often a sense that they've had a nice life, mm. and that the families or the friends, you know, are very sad. But you can create, you know, a, a good death. Um, you can give the families a chance to all spend time together mm-hmm. and there's there's often a feeling that this is time and in general the patients seem to be more at peace mm. with death that might have been something they've experienced before or thought about before yeah. um, but when I have looked after younger patients who are dying I found that very difficult because I can't rationalise it yeah. in my head in the same way um, so I think my first experience of a patient I was looking after before dying was on the it was on a gastro ward and it was a patient who was younger than me mm. um, and I found that really hard to deal with and I, I don't think I realised that it was I was finding it difficult mm. until I was getting upset about other things mm. um, how, how did you how did you realise that you were getting upset what, what do you mean by that sorry so I had a good cry in the car yeah so I was driving home from work and listening to Radio 4, because I'm cool, and there was like a radio documentary about something, that a tragedy that had happened about 50 years ago, and all of a sudden I was like sobbing on the spine road, and I was like, I don't normally find the radio this sad, and then I yeah. realised actually I was sad about work, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sad about, really I mean the tragedy was yeah. very sad, yeah. but I was, you know, reacting to what had happened earlier that day rather than what was happening now. So it's interrupted. That's, that, that's really insightful. There, I think. Is it to be very? It does able to be that reflective to recognise almost it is like symptoms of of what was going on. Yeah, and I think for me, it's about being okay with being sad. Mm. I don't mind having a cry about my patients, mm. as long as it's not impacting on my ability to cope. Yeah. I am, I'm fine with, you know, finding mm. things sad and finding things difficult. Yeah. Um, we were actually just having a chat in the staff room before, weren't we, about the sort of how uh, some of us have been told by SHOs, uh, you just got to deal with it, and sort of man up essentially, uh, which will varying degrees of scoffing. At <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and some of some of my friends who went from uni but who went off to do F one in different places, they definitely all felt. Um, like they were failing as doctors because they were finding things sad and difficult and felt like they were being unprofessional in finding things yeah. sad. Yeah. Um, but I think that, you know, you're still a human, uh, which is fairly obvious, but, you know, it's normal and it's right mm-hmm. to feel sad about sad situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what one of those powerful... Uh, discussions with relatives I've ever seen was actually um, one of the consultants at uh, 
um, um, in South Townside uh, when speaking to a relative of a patient who was dying, but during the conversation he, he, he was sort of weeping. And, 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 and it, it, it was such a powerful discussion, and actually like, I, I thought so much more of him after that for having that emotional sort of intelligence, that emotional capacity to sort of really care that much about the patients. That, so he, he, he clearly really cared about this, and it was, in that situation, it was very appropriate. It, was, it wasn't something which was, it was, it was like a sol- almost a solidarity with the relative. And not you know not it might not that might not be appropriate in every situation but I think a lot of the time it is uh, good to show sort of that emotional real yeah so I guess same question to you if you could distill one piece of advice uh, from that what would it be it's okay to not be okay yeah um and it's okay to find things hard and struggle with them and. Mm either accept that of yourself and you know let yourself feel sad and then you know keep going mm. or if you need to get help turning to you Matthew um, what happens when you can't do anything about a situation how do you kind of manage that um, so I suppose um, so kind of throughout foundation training dealt with quite a lot of dying patients um, and I found it actually on the whole some of the most rewarding work that I've done mm-hmm. um, but there's a point in F and that was largely because I felt as if we were getting it right mm-hmm. um, but there's a point towards the end of foundation training where um, I had a patient die and it affected me a lot more than I'd anticipated um, or ever expected um, and I think some of the reasons that that happened in retrospect is because of stuff that happened in my personal life. Um, stuff that I'd thought I'd dealt with previously, um, but became apparent clearly hadn't. Um, and that was the first time that's ever happened to me at work, mm-hmm. that I've felt something outside of work affect me that much at work, mm-hmm. that I felt as if I couldn't do my job anymore. Um, I suppose the approach to it was dealing with the acute thing that was happening at the time mm. as best I could and then remove myself when I was able to. Mm. Um, and I think talking to the on-call consultant that was there at the time, then talking to my clinical and educational supervisors, mm. um, talked to my family quite a lot about it. Um, and I think came to the realisation actually it's never going to be fine. like. Mm. something magical isn't going to happen you know I'm always going to be fine with that but Mm. having a knowledge that there's certain situations that I think I need to be more aware of how I'm feeling and Mm. discuss it with people I think the other thing that really stood out to me was actually how supportive the healthcare environment is Mm. I've found the people I talk to like very very supportive so my both my clinical and educational supervisors really useful sounding boards um, in terms of that and really kind of understood where I was coming from um, didn't particularly force me to do anything just were there to talk to me about it because mm. um, the thing that I went through basically neither of them had had experience of but yeah. there was still no judgement from them Yeah, um, I think 
the point that Jossie raised was that sometimes you can feel unprofessional when you get upset about things, yeah. and I was never made to feel that way um, at all by that. That's really good. And I think when my friends were feeling kind of like they were being unprofessional, I think mm. it was them putting them yeah, absolutely. themselves yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than anyone making making them feel yeah. that way. I, th I think what the, the realisation I've come to, I haven't shared that, that kind of same feeling, is that actually... You, to be professional you need to have an awareness of your own emotions and how you feel about things Absolutely. so that you know when you might need help yeah um, and I just don't I think there was just a blind spot um, that I made but now I don't know yeah I think people often have the feeling that as doctors we need to be robots and kind mm. of cope with everything without emotion but actually one of the best skills you can display as a doctor is empathy mm. and actually to be aware of how somebody's feeling also means you've got to be aware of how you're feeling about that mm. and about using your experience to help guide that so I think definitely yeah. Yeah. can I just come back to something you said you, you said about um, get, uh, I think we've, we've each mentioned this about sort of getting it right What when it comes to death and dying what, what does it mean to get it right? Um, for me recognising it so when a patient's dying being able to communicate it to the patient or their relatives if you're able to still a patient but if you're not then the relatives um, recognising that that is going to be sad that conversation but that's something that they need to hear and then being able to switch your focus of care to quality in terms of that they've got left yeah. you know spend it in the way that they would have wanted to so with family that they want to surrounded by like music or food or drink or whatever it is that they want to be surrounded by um, and I think managing symptoms as well um, that would be what getting it right means for me yeah and sometimes it means exactly what you said doing what doing what they want to do with the time they have left so you know raising the issue of home if that's possible um, and just giving people options because sometimes people don't realise that doing nothing is an option kind of mm. in terms of, kind of treating diseases obviously we still treat symptoms mm. I think so, yeah I think you're right sometimes relatives or patients see stopping treatment sometimes as a failure and sometimes look to us to say actually we're going to stop mm. um, I think as well alongside that don't be afraid of using the word dying. I know we yeah. probably you told you guys this enough during the non-physical encounter, but actually you need to be clear with a family. Um, you need to be clear with a patient because, you know, we can phrase it in so many different ways, approaching end of life, but actually sometimes we just need to be very clear and actually say that, that they are dying. And I think that's a really important thing because it's not something we should be getting lost in translation. This is such a serious thing that we need to approach it in the kind of the right footing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As uh, I think, um, uh, my wife was at a funeral recently, and the the priest sort of began it by saying, "This person is dead," and she was sort of taken aback. So like, you can't you can't say that, and then suddenly realised, how can I not? How can someone not say that at a funeral? And it's just that reflection that. Um, we're so averse to that that word that those words death dying dead um 
and it's really important to use it because otherwise we can we 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 don't want to even comprehend the idea sometimes it's such a taboo that i think we we can talk ourselves out of it we use words that passed on or moved on or that piece now or, or but it's not actually it, it, at some level it's it's bearing the truth that that something has stopped i think also to start with i was a little bit afraid of saying you know it's they might die when it wasn't quite clear what was going on mm. but actually it's okay to say they're very poorly mm. they're poorly enough to die mm. they might die from this mm. even when they might still get better yeah, yeah. you don't have to wait until mm. the last minute to recognize it yeah. you can be proactive in your communication and um have a discussion around your mm. what you imagine might happen yeah and i think don't automatically assume that the relatives are going to react badly to that mm. like i've gone for a chat with a family for a patient who i wanted to to palliate and uh, at the moment I said those words, just relief crossed their faces and they all just relaxed and they were like, we've known this for, for a few days now and this is just, we, we know this is what needs to happen and actually doing that offered them kind of some peace about the situation as opposed to seeing this kind of tiresome fight which their relative was going mm -hmm. through. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think obviously we've spoken a lot about what, happens kind of in the workplace but maybe for for you phil what happens kind of when you experience death and dying kind of in your personal life yeah so um i've said this before over, over sort of the p4p and the death and dying seminar but um uh when i uh started f1 within i think three weeks of f1 my uh, flatmate was diagnosed with cancer and then um in october of that year uh, he was told it was a palliative diagnosis and they couldn't do anything to cure him and he passed away uh, following so in the, in the um, January of F2 and um, obviously that had a I think that was hugely formative influenced so much of my F1 F2 experience especially about everything to do with death and dying and people with cancer and I, I found a few things that I really noticed was the first one was that um, uh, most patients with cancer uh, and most young patients I would find myself seeing was echoes of, of my my flatmate in that person uh, in that patient so um, and that those lines between sort of personal professional life became quite blurred and very difficult to disentangle um, and there's an element to which actually I needed to carry on doing my job and carry on sort of uh, like uh, yeah, I, I deal with people who are dying, etc. Um, but also to recognise sort of the effect that that's having on me personally, um, and that I think uh, uh, Matthew touched on it quite nicely. That sort of sometimes you have to get on with it, but afterwards just to to stop um, and debrief. And I, I similarly I found my clinical and especially my educational supervisor ex exceptionally helpful. I, I can't sort of recommend Northumbria Trust enough actually for the amount of support they offered. Um, they were probably much better than me at telling how well I was coping. Um, uh, after he passed away I came in on the Monday morning and then on the Tuesday I got a call from my educational supervisor 
um, saying, what, what the hell are you doing at work? Go home, I've already organised for your nights to be switched. Uh, someone else is covering those, you stay off for at least a week uh, and you're not to come into work. And uh, just sort of um, being sort of, they, they were quite proactive in terms of meeting with me, which is really, really helpful. Um, and I think there was an element to which, uh, in the lead up to, especially as, as my flatmate was getting more and more unwell, uh, recognising how that was impacting on um, my ability to deal with patients in similar situations. And, but after, after he died, I don't think I had, I don't think I'd anticipated, I thought it would be much harder while he was dying rather than after he died. And actually the biggest impact on my ability to work as a doctor probably happened after he died because I found myself very uh, distracted um, I'd hit about 1pm one, 1, 1 in the day and my mind would go fuzzy for the rest of the day and I couldn't concentrate um, for about, about a month and I found myself getting very snappy and very frustrated and sort of losing my patience with nurses which I didn't think was much like me normally um, and having to apologise a lot uh, and uh, uh, and that took time as well and I think in the western world we're kind of we have this thing I don't, I don't know how much you agree or not um, but when people die we, have, we give people about a week or two and then we've all moved on and we think that person has too and if we're that person who's lost someone then we think we should have moved on and it's interesting because in some cultures I think in South parts of South America uh, uh, if your spouse dies you take a year off work um, and in other places and other places sort of uh, there's, a, there's, there's a very different approach to, to sort of the, the grieving process um, and um, yeah, to to recognise, I think that you need to allow yourself time, and to recognise different stages of going through um, that grieving process, and um, how that impacts on you. And yes, you can still work, but we're, we're, like it's just as important to recognise your limitations, I think, as it is to uh, to be able to come back to work. I don't know if you guys have had any sort of. Okay, you get. I guess Matthew, you kind of reflected on some of your own mm -hmm. sort of impact there. Yeah, I think. I I just I think held the assumption that most people did, which you touched on, which is, after a couple of weeks, I'm fine. Yeah. And almost conned myself when actually it was a couple of years later that this happened, and then. Yeah. All came back again. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, and I. Yeah. I. It's not bringing. It's not something from my personal life, but um, doing four months on the palliative care ward definitely had a big impact on me at the time, and I don't think I recognised that until I stopped working. Um, so rather than taking my personal life to work, I was definitely taking my taking work home, mm -hmm. and it was um, impacting on um, well, just my happiness, I guess, mm. because work was you know, emotionally very hard work you're constantly having difficult conversations witnessing people you know being upset and difficult scenarios and things that were just not fair and didn't feel right um and after f2 i had some time off and went on holiday um, and after kind of a month of not working i found that i was so much happier yeah um and i perhaps should have 
built a few more breaks into that job. Um, I think I used all of my annual leave kind of visiting families and doing things that are nice to do but aren't actually a break because they're, they're personal jobs, if you like. Um, and I probably needed more rest and that's mm. what helped me there. Yeah, that's a really good advice. Um, any final reflections on anything we talked about? I'd echo what Jesse said, which is it's it's okay not to be okay. Just yeah. talk to the people that you know will help you. Yeah. Whether that's supervisors, consultants, other yeah. friends, family, whoever it is. Yeah. Um, and also to be able to draw, it's good to draw on your own experiences. Not to, it, It's not a bad thing always when your personal professional life blends because I, I, I think that my experiences have made me better as a doctor and I, I think I've been much better at dealing with people who are going through grieving um, or losing a loved one as a result um, very subjectively <laughs> um, but um, yeah and just before we end I just wanted to signpost a few resources uh, whether you're interested in uh, learning a bit more for yourself as more of an abstract concept in terms of being prepared for uh, being on the job or if you find yourself in similar situations where you've got personal circumstances. Um, uh, there's a book called With the End in Mind by... you stolen my epilogue. <laughs> by Catherine Mannix, uh, which is a phenomenal book. I cannot um, recommend it highly yeah. enough. Whether I think from a personal point of view, but also from a professional yeah. point of view, yeah, I don't know. You no, I've said this before. If there was one book I wish I'd read before yeah. I started being a doctor, it's that one. But it wasn't published when we were at university. Okay. But yeah, but yeah, do do read that even if you haven't experienced death or dying in your own life. Um, There's also a podcast called <laughs> Griefcast, which I really like, and it's about people talking about um, personal experiences mm. of death and grief but they often talk about um, the information they got from medical professionals mm. and when we as um, the medical team got things right and wrong yeah. it's very interesting to reflect on mm. anything that you would recommend Matt? no I'm not going to lie to you the opposite I go into my own world and try not to read stuff <laughs> Um, also, a website called Cruise, C R U S E, has got some really wonderful resources on, uh, particularly with bereavement, uh, which is good for signposting to patients and families as well. Um, and of course, I think hopefully it's been obvious because we've mentioned it a lot, but talk to your friends, talk to your relatives, and talk to uh, talk to your clinical and special educational supervisors if you find, especially if you think that this might be impacting, even if it's not impacting on you enough to, to, to pause work or take a holiday mm. or anything like that, even if it just, it's just, it, it's come up while treatment patient or something, I think it's important to let people know. And I think just acknowledging when things are difficult on the ward yeah. um, is a big relief to the whole ward team as well. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it's like, everyone knows that something's going on, but no one's acknowledged it yet, and there's something that someone is just sitting back and saying, this is hard right now. Cool, so before we sign off today, we're going to recommend a phenomenal piece of music. Uh, please go check out Watermelon by Tom Rosenthal. And 
If you do, please, please, please check out the music video. It's phenomenal.